From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a show where we discuss philosophical concepts of the classical tradition and their application to our daily lives and current events. I'm David Schenk, and on today's show, we'll discuss the ongoing erosion of intellectual honesty in academia and, increasingly, in K-12 public education. We'll look at what's happening and what we might do about it. Before I start today's podcast, I'd like to say a little bit about what prompted me to do this. I've spent the last 18 years teaching as a philosophy professor at university. I've stopped doing that now and have made a career change. In large part, what's driving me to take up this podcast is the alarm that I have felt over the past 10 years or so at the arc of academia and through it, increasingly, the arc of K-12 education at public schools in America. I have become convinced that American academia and K-12 public education are at a major breaking point. And if we do not right our collective ship now, in coming decades, the consequences of our failure will be disastrous. Themes of the podcast that I will pursue throughout the year include intellectual honesty and honor, thinking clearly, and how easy it is to ruin our lives when we fail to, the concept of virtue, what it is and what it isn't, and so with that, justice, what it is and isn't, how the classical understanding of virtue was lost, how that loss is undermining people's lives right now all across the country, and how I think intellectual honesty in particular has become the linchpin for any hope of restoring it. And then finally, what I see classical Christian education doing to restore intellectual honesty and with it, moral competence in people. In a classic apologetic essay from his book, God and the Dock, C.S. Lewis has an essay called Man or Rabbit. It begins as follows. Can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity? The question sounds as if it were asked by a person who said to himself, I don't care whether Christianity is in fact true or not. I'm not interested in finding out whether the real universe is more like what the Christians say than what the materialists say. All I'm interested in is leading a good life. I'm going to choose beliefs, not because I think them true, but because I find them helpful. Now, frankly, I find it hard to sympathize with this state of mind. One of the things that distinguishes man from the other animals is that he wants to know things, wants to find out what reality is like simply for the sake of knowing. When that desire is completely quenched in anyone, I think he has become something less than human. That's most of the opening paragraph of Man or Rabbit by Clive Staples Lewis. 
I think Lewis is dead on the money on this one. I think he's got it exactly right. Where intellectual honesty and so with it intellectual curiosity, the desire to find out the actual objective truth of the matter dies in a person. Strictly speaking, the most human part of them also thereby has died. Where I allow myself to become less attached to trying to find out and more attached to an agenda, I have thrown away the best part of myself. I think that's exactly right. And unfortunately, I think that's exactly what's going on in academia today. And it's because it's going on at colleges and universities that we see it going on in public K-12 through education. Anyone who has toured one of the education departments at our universities knows where this is coming from. It is coming out of the way those public school teachers are trained at university. I've been watching this since I was a graduate student more than 20 years ago. And for the past, gosh, how long has it been now? For the past 28 years, it has become a more and more extreme dilemma. And it has reached such a pitch that now here I am sitting in front of a microphone and a camera as a man who refuses to own a cell phone and refuses to have any social media trying to speak to a world that only ever uses cell phones and social media. And I've made the decision to adjust my own delivery method to the 21st century in order to reach an audience that is outside of academia and doesn't realize what's actually happening within the walls of these colleges and universities. I've been in these colleges and universities since 1987, and it's been since then the only thing I have done with my life. I know what's going on in these places, and I'm here to explain it. For some of you, probably you already know what's going on. For many of you, you've heard breathless reports about it, but you've never been altogether sure when they're telling you the straight truth and when they're trying to spin something. As much as humanly possible, I'm going to try to give you the straight dope on what I have seen with my own eyes, heard with my own ears, and give you an account of what's going on here. It's important to note that the real harm we do to ourselves in abandoning intellectual honesty doesn't come from any malice or special shortcoming. It comes from a virtue. It comes from something good in us. The desire to avoid harm, the desire to minimize injury to others, our compassion for those who suffer or who those who, following the jargon of the day, are marginalized 
But if we allow that compassion to run so rampant in us that we will not let the evidence tell us we're wrong about something, it does not matter how compassionate of liars we become. We become liars. It's hard for a lot of people today to understand this, I think. The classical concept of good and evil is not what we think it is today. When we think of justice and injustice or good and bad today, we almost always think in terms of harm and avoiding harm. In classical thought, certainly preventing harm is important. It is not all important. The concept of evil that the classical tradition works with is not one of malice necessarily, but of something good, something that started off good, becoming distorted, becoming deranged, becoming twisted beyond its proper function. The two main ways for some good to be distorted and thereby become evil. There can be a deficiency of it or there can be an excess of it. A deficiency of compassion is perfectly familiar. That's what we would call not just cruelty but indifference, someone being uncaring. When someone suffers a deficiency of compassion for their fellow human, they are truly morally deficient. I've met some who, through their anger, their resentment, have reached such a lack of compassion that I had to invent a new phrase for it. I call it Moral retardation. There is a stunting of the conscience when anger or resentment is allowed so extremely to take it over. So one deficiency is a deficiency of compassion, right? Wherein I am less compassionate than I ought to be toward those who suffer. But another deformation of my conscience can occur where I allow compassion to become a tyrant. I allow something good in me, remember, my compassion for those who suffer to become an authoritarian tyrant of all my beliefs and all my moral thinking. Right now, in the humanities and social sciences, it's popular to talk about the importance of empathy. On one level, I agree. Empathy and with it compassion are enormously important. But too often right now, academia just implicitly assumes, without looking at the evidence, they just assume that the problem we have today is a lack of empathy. It does not occur to them 
that we might actually be risking an excess of it. Many won't even think there is such a thing as an excess of empathy. But there is. If I allow my compassion for those who suffer to guide what I believe about the nature of the universe, that might help make me a more decent person on a certain level. It will never make me more honest. It will never turn me into the sort of person who is willing to face the actual facts of the world around him. And if I don't put that criterion first before my compassion, how would I ever know? How would I ever listen to the evidence that I had gone too far with my compassion? My concern regarding academia today is that we are becoming intellectual rabbits. In Manor Rabbit, Lewis's point is that insofar as someone believes certain propositions not on account of the evidence that they are true or the evidence that they are false, but on account of where you perceive some benefit from those beliefs, something to gain or some loss to avoid, you might have a decent heart while you're doing that. You will never have a decent intellect while you're doing that. You will always be at war with the actual facts of the universe without meaning to. You will always be, in the end, a kind of spiritual rabbit who just wants to avoid harm and seek as much pleasure as possible, be it for yourself or for others, it doesn't matter. So long as avoiding harm and pursuing pleasure is what really drives you and finding out the truth isn't what really drives you. You're not living like a grown person. You're living like a rabbit. And in academia today, a lot of us have become intellectual rabbits. There are questions that you are no longer permitted to ask in academia. Not because they, uh, the evidence has proven something true or proven something false, but because the very question itself is considered too offensive, too harmful to people, especially too harmful to vulnerable people, for the very asking them to be acceptable. If uncomfortable questions cannot be asked in academia, where exactly would they be asked? Well, I suppose we could say right now, the only place left on podcasts. Joe Rogan does it every week. Academia has become terrified of doing so. So the real threat that I see to academia today doesn't come from evil as we would ordinarily describe it, vice as we would ordinarily describe it. Think of it rather in these terms because these are the classical terms 
We learned this from Augustine. The real threat to academia today comes from an excess, a surfeit of compassion. It's that kind of compassion, though, that insists on deciding which questions are permissible to ask and which are not. It insists on deciding that decency, honor, and justice are always going to be defined on its terms and no others. No other variable, no other impulse in us is permitted to guide our moral reasoning. It has become the dictator of our consciences. And through it, we have become cowardly, intellectual rabbits. Think of it this way. Anyone who has sat down and eaten some Ben and Jerry's knows perfectly well there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. My personal record back in graduate school was set with two full pints of Ben and Jerry's right after dinner, not even sitting down, just standing in front of the fridge with a spoon. The first pint was chocolate chip cookie dough. The second pint was chocolate fudge brownie. And I just socked both of those pints away, hardly stopping to breathe right after dinner. Why did I eat so much of it? Because it was so good, obviously. But was it good for me to eat so much of it? Of course not. It's totally unhealthy to do that. I socked away two pints of Ben and Jerry's standing in front of my fridge in my apartment when I was a graduate student at the University of Iowa. So then why did I do it? I mean, I knew it was unhealthy, right? I'm not an idiot. Because one of my impulses, a perfectly good impulse when it's not rampant, eat ice cream, became the tyrant of my life in that moment. It took control of me, and no other impulse was allowed to speak. An obsession took over my life in that moment. That's one of the primary ways that evil in the classical sense, evil not in the sense of malice or cruelty or indifference, but evil in the sense of the distortion of something that is in in itself good, but the distortion is not good. That's one of the primary ways that evil really begins in us. An impulse, a habit, or a desire in us that by itself is fine runs unchecked. Unchecked by reason and even unchecked by our other impulses and so becomes a raving tyrant ruling our minds in that moment. If you think about it at all, That is what obsessions are. When you become obsessed with something, you are, without really necessarily consciously wanting to, nonetheless still allowing some one impulse in you to take over your life. My overriding thesis in this episode is that compassion works this way too. By itself, it is an altogether good impulse. And the people who lack it truly are miserably morally deficient. 
but an overabundance of it is no less harmful. If we allow that compassion to become the tyrant of our minds, eventually it will turn us into monsters. That's what every impulse that becomes a tyrant eventually does. So my big distinction in this episode is between what I will call, following Lewis, intellectual humans versus intellectual rabbits. Those who are willing to face the objective evidence and be honest about it, and those who are too cowardly or pathologically obsessed to let the cosmos tell them what is true and what is false. In many respects, I share the nervousness. I share the compassionate fears that some of my more intellectually rabbit-like colleagues suffer. The issue isn't whether or not we feel that. We should feel that. But are we going to let that be the only thing we feel? Are we going to let that one impulse make all of our decisions about what to believe and what not to? Because any one of these really basic moral impulses we have, if it is not checked, counterbalanced by any others, it will become tyrannical. Anyone who's fought with an obsession knows how this works. If you don't stop it taking over your life, it does take over your life. Examples of this are easy to find. I'm not going to go into the details of any of them. But the fundamental issue that I see in this is the tendency to refuse even to allow certain questions in the classroom, in one's publications, in which readings you assign, in which books you yourself read as an academic. The tendency to disallow questions with which one is uncomfortable in order to avoid having to face the possibility of unpleasant hypotheses turning out to be true. I might be, in fact, I probably will be, a kinder person, a gentler person, insofar as I indulge that compassionate impulse. What I will never be, though, is an honest, grown man who stands up on two legs before the universe and faces its facts. The only way I can do that latter thing is by putting honesty before compassion at least a good chunk of the time. I have just a few minutes left for this episode. Please indulge me and I will read the ending of Lewis's Man or Rabbit. He's answering the question of whether or not a person can lead a good life without being Christian. And at the end of it, Lewis always does this, at the end of it, he pulls out all the stops. All right, Christianity will do you good. A great deal more good than you ever wanted or expected. And the first bit of good it will do you is to hammer into your head the fact that what you have hitherto called good, all that about leading a decent life and being kind, or today what we call justice, isn't quite the magnificent and all-important affair you supposed. 
It will teach you that, in fact, you can't be good not for 24 hours on your own moral efforts. And then it will teach you that even if you were, you still wouldn't have achieved the purpose for which you were created. Mere morality is not the end of life. You were made for something quite different from that. The people who keep on asking if they can't lead a decent life without Christ don't know what life is about. If they did, they would know that a decent life is mere machinery compared with the thing we men are really made for. Morality is indispensable, but the divine life, which gives itself to us and which calls us to be gods, intends for us something in which Morality will be swallowed up. We are to be remade. All the rabbit in us is to disappear. The worried, conscientious, ethical rabbit, as well as the cowardly and sensual rabbit. We'll bleed and squeal as the handfuls of fur come out, and then, surprisingly, we shall find underneath it all a thing we had never yet imagined— a real man, an ageless God, a son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. It's from 1 Corinthians. The idea of reaching a good life without Christ is based on a double error. Firstly, we cannot do it. And secondly, in setting up a good life as our final goal, we have missed the very point of our existence. Morality is a mountain which we cannot climb by our own efforts. And if we could, we should only perish in the ice and unbreathable air of the summit, lacking those wings with which the rest of the journey has to be accomplished. In the end, I think Lewis is right about this too. If you think... Pursuing justice, being a good person, is all that life is about. You have grossly underestimated life. The purpose of goodness is not its service to some social or political end. The purpose of goodness is goodness, and anyone who doesn't see that has become morally blind. The purpose of beauty is beauty, not how it sells in the marketplace. And anyone who doesn't see that has become aesthetically blind or even half dead. And the purpose of truth is never what it brings you. The purpose of truth is truth. And anyone who doesn't see that has become an intellectual rabbit. This has been Philosophia. Thanks for joining, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www.truenorth.fm. <laughs>